Welcome to the Organic Gardener Podcast. I'm your host, Jackie Marie Beyer. Let's get growing. Hi, listeners. I'd like to invite you to visit our website at organicgardenerpodcast.com where you can sign up for our newsletter, download our ebook on organic gardening basics, and get started on building your very own organic oasis today. Welcome back to my amazing interview with Tony and Denise Gitz, who are sharing some just very valuable tips for any gardener, no matter where you live or what you're growing. Do you want to tell us about something that didn't work so well this season? Okay. Oh, we got a lot of that. <laughs> we have a lot of that. <laughs> Every year, it's always something. Um, this year for us, the first thing that comes to mind is our dahlias didn't do well. Um, we had one of the hottest summers on record, I would think, for... At least as long as we've been doing it. As long as we've been doing it. I mean, days of 90 degrees, we usually can count those maybe a week or two total for the summer, wouldn't you say? Yeah, at least. Well, this this summer was at least a month, maybe a month and a half. It was like 45 days. 45 days of 90 plus. I mean, some of those days were in the hundreds. And... We also get wind, and the wind that comes from the the east is really hot, and it blows, and it's like being in a convection oven. And so our dahlias were stressed right off the bat. And our little farm is located right in the middle of the grassy capital of world <laughs> yeah lynn county oregon is is like there's just miles and miles of grass seed fields and one of the problems with monoculture is is it breeds um problems with insects insect doesn't really bother the grass seed people but the spotted cucumber beetle i'm sure some people are um, used to that um feeds on things it feeds on is the roots of annual ryegrass, which they grow all around us. And this bug has um, a tendency to, once it gets, the soil gets warm enough, it hatches and it just migrates in the wind. And it's a voracious eater of dahlias for starters. And, um, you know, so our plants were pretty stressed this year so that we had a really huge cucumber beetle infestation. And they don't just take a bite. Well, when they, they browse, they take a bite and run that petal, and then they run that petal and that flower. And that's typical. But this year, they skeleton, skeletonized? I don't yeah, know if, if that's you, a if word. If you go into our, uh, I think it's on our Instagram. Instagram. Feed. There's a picture of two dahlias that are just, you. they're on, almost unrecognizable. They're <laughs> just decimated the leaves they ate the petals they're looking for the pollen they just devoured them and at a certain point there was nothing i mean there's no organic control for them whatsoever uh, and even if you did it doesn't last it, it doesn't last so we just at a certain point said wow this is just a major loss 200 foot rows of dahlias was just a loss all we were trying to do at the uh, this summer was just to keep 
the plants alive to um, uh, for tuber production so that we would be able to dig the tubers this fall and uh, that was successful we got really good tubers so the plant you know plants are you know pretty amazing things you know when they know they're under attack they uh, they tend to you know work towards self-preservation and they they actually even as bad as the plants looked they produced pretty good tubers so but not one beautiful bloom no not one <laughs> it was bad and then the other one that i would say was a major um loss course and this is one of the reasons we want to move away from purchase plugs is we spent a fair amount of uh time and money on buying uh, lisianthus plugs because um we were told about germination problems and time and all that kind of stuff so we thought okay fine we'll do that and we put them in our hoop house this is the second year we put them in a the hoop house last year when we, we raised our own um and we got some um plants from some friends um they produced really well this year when we put them in unfortunately what happened is within a week of putting them in that's when we started with two weeks straight of 90 plus degree weather and it, it basically um the plants didn't have time to adapt and they they uh, immediately uh went into um trying to bloom so what we ended up with were um plants that were stunted like about anywhere from eight to 12 inches tall yeah, with maybe really, one or two blooms on them, you know? them were only four inches they were beautiful blooms but it was like uh they were more these plants are supposed to be like two foot tall or better you know with lots of like a spray of blooms on them and boy that was that, that was, was a disaster uh well, cool. Well, I think listeners are going to, like, you know, enjoy kind of hearing a little bit about your trials because it'll kind of inspire them and that you're both so still positive and everything. So they're going to be like, oh, well, that's going to happen and we're going to have to deal with it. And yeah, the way you deal with it, probably a lot of it, too. Right. Sounds like you guys have that again. just I was saying diversity. It sounds like you have a diverse farm yep. and lots of choices for people and different things that you've. And then lots of uh, trial and error and just. Um... Yeah, that's really the key is you, you just have to go into every year assuming um, something is going to because not work, not work and um, it could be because of the heat or the cold or the wet or the dry or whatever it is, you know, and um, that's and, and some plants do better. You know, as an example, you know, we talked about the scented geraniums this year. <laughs> they are fantastic. Um, next year, you know, like um, maybe not so much. And and so we just kind of realized that, um, yeah, having a diversity of things is is really important. Um, but you can't be so diverse that that you're. Um, yeah, spread too thin. All right. Do you want to tell us about something that's easy to grow and generally successful every time? The easiest and most successful thing that we grow is dianthus from the overwintered biennials, the old fashioned sweet William to the um, bouquet series of dianthus and then to the summer Amazon series of dianthus. They are hardworking, they take a lot of abuse, um, 
pretty much every time we can um, get those into the ground and, you know, the slugs like them. So we have to do a little bit of battle with the slugs, but they will produce beautiful blooms pretty much consistently. And our designers and florists just love to work with them. Nice. Do you want to say anything in case I forget at the end about what it's like to work with designers and florists and how that's a little bit different than working with farmers markets or CSA? Are there special things that you do or that they look for? I know a few people have talked about, and like you said in the beginning, at a farmer's market, you kind of grow more um, like big, bright colors. People are looking for something right then and there that's only going to be that that very day or something more and then as people change more towards like weddings or like maybe there's a little bit of a different look that you're looking for well in terms of um how we're growing now for designers and our floors um we kind of have to kind of straddle two different kinds of groups um the traditional um florist the brick and mortar you know, that have a shop, um, they are um, discovering the wonderfulness of local flowers. And they, uh, the particular ones we have have been in business for a long time. And um, they're open and excited about using flowers, but they, you know, they've have a standard of what they're used to working with and so they have certain things that they want and certain styles that they have that you know when I go and meet with them and stuff I ask them you know what are the things that they're looking for and they kind of give me you know an idea of the types of flowers and the colors and things like that that they're they're um, wanting you know, to see, um, and dealing with them, you need to be extremely consistent with them. Um, they want to be able to count on you, um, that you show up, you know, you say what you're going to, you're going to provide and that you show up on whatever day you established as a delivery day and that you stand behind your product. And what that's been one of the things that, um, they've all said that they really admire about us is how much we stand behind a product. Um, flowers is a natural thing. And although, you know, we are meticulously looking over everything for the highest quality, sometimes things get biased that we didn't realize that something might've been not so great or whatever. And, um, they feel very comfortable with us and we're more than happy to hear if something didn't work for them that we want them to tell us and um, to let us know. So we'll stand behind the product and make sure that they get something else that's useful for them. Or we've been told on some things that, you know, that's not something that they're going to be purchasing and that we might want to look somewhere else on a different type of flower. So they help us to know, you know, what to grow and what not to grow. The other side of it is we have designers who are um, for event work and those are, um, 
independent type gals who work out of their own personal studios or whatnot, and they do mostly events, you know, weddings and um, engagements and corporate events and stuff like that. And they are more interested in the unusual, the different, the anything that doesn't look like it came from a farmer's market. And they are interested in um, colors that particularly for weddings that run the blushes and the whites and the salmons and that. Although once in a while they want something that's really different and unusual. And so we have to also be looking for flowers that are different and something that's not seen, you know, because they're looking for their designs apart. So it's kind of fun and challenging to straddle both sides. Cool. Those were great tips. Uh, and I think a lot of important things that if listeners are thinking about growing flowers for sale, that they would um, need to know. And it's good to, uh, yeah, consistency has been something I've heard a lot as my husband and I are kind of trying to figure out if we're going to grow for market or for what. I've thought a lot about being a flower farmer, but I think I'm just going to paint the flowers. I don't know if I'll ever grow enough to sell. I don't think I can do the consistency part. I don't even think I could handle being a CSA member. <laughs> I'm just a little too much of an independent. Just uh, fly by the seat of my pants girl. Um, something that you would steer new gardeners away from that you find is typically challenging to grow in your climate. Is there something like that? Um, well, season extension is, is uh, a whole new learned art, um, meaning that, you know, once the days get shorter and, and the temperatures are, you know, on the cold side, um, our recommendation, especially if you're going to start in the flower business, you know, focus in on your best part of your growing season first, probably start with a good selection of annuals that you know will move if say if your targets are florists or or designers or whatever your target market is or even farmers market um you know get your feet wet so that you understand the dynamic of your farm we always kind of like to say you know every every farm and every farmer is like a snowflake there's some things that are similar but there's a lot of things just enough things everywhere to be a little different and so even though, you know, like on our farm where we are, and then we got some good friends on the other side of the valley, um, like this last year, we couldn't grow dahlias if our life depended on it for a cut flower, but they did fantastic. And there's just a difference of being, you know, 20 miles away. And it's just a, it's getting to understand your microclimate, your soils, you know, your customers, don't go overboard and invest in, you know, equipment and things of that nature before you've, you've really gone, um, gone that way. Perfect. That's excellent advice. I like that a lot. Um, I love the whole piece about working together and, you know, that's kind of the abundance mindset, which I like a lot better than the scarcity mindset and, you know, getting to know your customers before you really decide um and i've had kind of a little bit of experience my big experiment this year was to grow sunflowers and i was thinking i could grow them for market i planted 750 sunflowers and wow. like 
six bouquets. <laughs> birds loved them, and I, I got a little bit of seed. Um, still not enough to feed just our birds at our house, but enough I'm hoping to grow enough sunflowers maybe next year to feed my birds so I don't have to buy bird seed. And I don't know if we're ever going to have a field enough to... So that was my big experiment this year was the sunflower thing. Uh, and right. my husband grows the vegetables. Uh, okay, tell us about your least favorite activity to do in the garden. What do you guys each have to force yourself? Is there something you have to force yourself to get out there and do? Um, for me, it's washing buckets because um, we deliver all our flowers um, in water in buckets and we pick the buckets and then deliver into buckets. The buckets pile up every week and that's one of my jobs is to wash buckets. Not fun. <laughs> I, I, Are you going to tell us really quick? Well, I'd say, you know, for me. Wait, just quickly. Go ahead. Do you put anything in the water or just water? Or do you put bleach in? Did somebody tell me? Uh, there's just a smidge of, we have to put a smidgen of bleach in them at, uh, to uh, make sure that they're all nice and clean. Um, water, clean water and clean buckets are absolutely key for, um, picking flowers. Some flowers make um, the water dirty. And so it's always nice to start with clean clippers, clean bucket, and, you know, good, nice, clean water in it. So it's a not a fun job. You end up feeling like you're getting more wet than the buckets are. It's splashing all over and stuff. But yeah, I wash the buckets in the sink and and dry them on a rack. And it's just one of the jobs you got to do to have a nice flower. Okay, but I meant like when you put the flowers in them, do you put anything in the water like sugar or? Oh, oh, um. There's, there's um, requirements for um, post-harvest treatment of all the flowers, and they all vary different. Yeah, I mean, some, some, some flowers are, are what they call dirty flowers, meaning that when you cut them and you put them in water, the first thing they do is flush a whole bunch of stuff out of the bottom of their stem. And in some cases like that, well, we um, use our slow-release chlorine tablets as an example that kill off the bacteria while these stems are, you know, adjusting and equalizing themselves. The thing that really cuts a life short on a flower is when the bottom of the stem gets blocked and, and uh, so it can't take water up. And in some cases, a lot of flowers don't really need extra sugar as much as they just need clean water. And in some cases, if you're we're not you know, on that aspect on the post-harvest side because of the requirements of our customers. We do use some of the professional um, um, hydrating solutions and and uh, those chlorine tablets, but we don't use terribly much of it. Um, a lot of times there are flowers that are just fine in pure water, and dianthus is a great example of that. It doesn't really need anything. And... Um, Tulips, although is an example, they would maybe go the other way. They actually perform much better by using um, a specialized bulb food. So some flowers, some flowers are better. Yeah, and some some flowers are what we call dirty flowers, and they need the chlorine, but they don't necessarily need a food. 
Um, other things like scented geraniums, as an example, do much better when they get a 24-hour treatment of what's called a hydrating solution, which is basically a fancy way of saying it's a solution that keeps the ends of the uh, stem open and helps with uptake of water. And, and so um, most cases for us, though, we don't, we don't use terribly much of it. Um, but there are things that we need to do just from the standpoint that's uh, customer requirements. And a lot of times, too, it's also the timing of when you pick the flower. Mm -hmm. He mentions the scented geraniums. We like to pick as close to the point of delivery as possible so that the flower is as fresh as possible. So it gets into the hand of the designer and then they get it into the hands of the customer and the customer gets to spend the most time with the flower. But on some things like the scented geranium, we have to cut them 24 hours before we're going to deliver them because they just need that much time in a nice cool um, we have a cooler and they just need that time to kind of go in there, cool down, rest and just rehydrate themselves so that they will be nice and plump and lush and not wilty. And Yeah, I mean, scented geraniums are a great example of when to cut time of day. So as an example, if we cut it in the morning, uh, say we, you're in July, right, and you cut it in the morning before 9 a.m., and get it in the cooler right away. It's fine. Yeah, it'll be now you know nice and standing up straight and all that. You cut it anytime between 9 a.m. and 8 p.m. and you're going to be looking at 36 hours of um, changing the water and keeping it in the cooler before they finally perk back up. And then then the weird thing is this time of year too. When you get to uh, cutting scented geraniums, say in end of September or October, when the days don't get very hot, you can cut them any time of the day, and it doesn't matter. They'll stand straight up. And a lot of that has to do with you know temperature, but the other aspect of it is, is the maturity of the plant. Sometimes, different times of the year, plants will either build more proteins or they'll build more carbohydrates. A plant that is growing fast tends to have more carbohydrate than protein, and they tend to wilt. They also um, can, you know, be more sensitive to uh, temperature. So when plants kind of, you know, get into the latter part of the season and they're toughening themselves up, they tend to have more cellulose, more proteins in them, and um, they, they are less sensitive to um, time of day of being cut. Wow. So do you guys grow sunflowers? Yes, we do. Problems. My sunflowers, when I put them in the vase, they lasted like three days. Yeah. And I didn't oh. know if that was right. Like when I no, saw some sunflowers, right. <laughs> another what we call the dirty flowers. And it's because they got hairy stems, yeah. too. That they they harbor a lot of bacteria. Right. And so when you cut them and you just put them in plain water. Now, this also depends, too, when you cut them. What people, most people make the mistake and they say, oh, a sunflower, it's open and the petals are all open, you know, wide, the yellow petals and the edges are wide open and maybe even the center starts looking a little hairy, um, meaning the bees are visiting it. Too late. It's too late. The best time to cut it, uh, sunflower, is just when they start popping their petals open. So just in other words, off. just lifting off uh, uh, of the, the center of the flower, okay? So the pollen hasn't been established or released yet. By the way, we grow pollen with sunflowers. That's another 
good tip. And, and um, you cut them right at that point where they're just beginning to open, get them in water with, um, in, in your case, you use like an eyedropper and put like maybe, you know, four or five drops of bleach in your base water. Okay. And, and you'll get a good uh, two weeks. Yeah, you know, we've made, <laughs> I shouldn't brag about this, but uh, we've made the uh, mistake sometimes in the back of the cooler, meaning to get um, some sunflowers that we had extra and we should have either pitched them or done something with them. And sometimes we, we have left them in the back of the cooler for a month and they're still fine. Wow. So that's not something not we, we recommend, recommend. doing. <laughs> because you're not really supposed to do that. Yeah, but you it don't want to lose things in the back of the cooler. Yeah, it was kind of an interesting experiment. We pulled them out, and we brought them in the house, and they actually lasted about four or five days, even after being in there for a month. So, Not recommended. The other thing is, too, is people don't strip enough leaves off of They tend to cut them, and they leave leaves on. Leaves are us. They just suck the water right out of it. Okay. What you want to do is the only leaf you want to leave on is the very tippy-top one right below the bloom. It's typically a fairly small leaf, too. Okay. But um, leaves will cause the uh, plant to wilt very quickly. Nice. You guys are just so full of information. Okay. Did you, Tony, did you want to, I didn't mean to interrupt. Do you want to tell us your least favorite activity? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It would be scraping snow off of my tunnels. <laughs> weeding. Um, yeah. And, and weeding is okay. You know, I don't mind weeding when I get to, um, you know, whack them when they're at like the cotyledon stage, but sometimes things, bad things happen. And you go back and go, darn, I should have done that sooner. Uh, and when you're on your hands and knees having to pull stuff out that you shouldn't have to, that's more frustrating than anything. But um, I, I'd say, you know, realistically, um, when things are going right, that's when I feel really good. <laughs> good. All right, let's hear your favorite activities to do in the garden. Um, I, I think harvest is kind of one of the key times for us it's it's um it's kind of the cubic you know the that the top of the peak so to speak mm -hmm. when all the work that you've done uh is now to the point where you've created something um really cool and you're getting it into the hands of people who really appreciate it and um i think that's that's kind of for us Harvesting or photographing. Yeah, I she like likes to, photograph. I like to take pictures of the pretty flowers. Me too. And then I like to paint the pictures. Oh, wow. Cool. All right. Do you guys want to... I am going to skip a couple because we are like well over an hour already. But you guys have taught us so much. I'm super excited. Uh, how about the best gardening advice you've ever received? Well... I'd say um, we got this from a friend who's a blueberry, organic blueberry grower here in the valley. And one of the things that um, opened my eyes a lot was um, balancing the minerals in your soil. And depending on where you are, um, there's an optimum balance that he raises blueberries that are just incredibly sweet, um, nutrient dense, they call it. And he has um, very little insect and disease problem on his place. And the secret, at least in this part of the, of um, 
these soils that we have around here is they're extremely low in calcium. And balancing, I'd say the best advice we got was balance your minerals in your soil, balance your calcium, your magnesium, and all that kind of stuff. And that's kind of the key starting point um, that really helped us kind of understand soil ecology better. Awesome. I've had quite a few people say that your soil, getting those tests done are essential. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. How about a favorite tool that you like to use? Like if you each had to move and could only take one tool with you, what would it be? Would you take the same tool or do you each have your own tool? Uh, I'd take the broad fork. And, and the reason behind that is, is, is it gets down and loosens up the soil down to a good 12 inches or so, which is excellent you know, for the plants. And um, we are no-till, meaning if we use tillage, it's very, very rarely anymore. Our objective is to, um, you know, kind of keep the soil um, biologically kind of not, you know, go through the process of running through a Cuisinart like with a rototiller or, a, you know, or a plow or something like that. So the idea is that over time, everything we raise is on permanent beds. So um, that's a key tool to making it work. I think mine is the soil blockers. Uh, it just allows me so much flexibility on what I can grow and how much I can grow. Cool. I'm so going to try those this year. I'm going to get some for Mike at the new year. Uh, okay. How about, I'm going to skip over all the food ones, a favorite internet resource? Someplace you guys like to go on the internet, either one of you or both of you? Um, I think that the key one is our association of specially cut flower growers that it, we have been a member since 2005. 2005 and a uh, huge resource. It's just a you know, if, if you're a flower grower, it, it's just the greatest investment to become a member of that. The information that you get through the publications and the bulletin boards and community is just super. I also get a lot of information off of um, the flower farmers on Facebook. Um kind of I try and um, work and help provide information with what I know works but I also glean and learn so much from what others are doing and lots of seed companies have lots of great growing notes and stuff it's just read 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 and learn <laughs> as much as you can I think one of the other um now, this is more from a tool standpoint, but uh, there's a website called FarmHack, um, and that's where a lot of uh, innovative, um, mostly younger growers, um, kind of share designs on tools and things that they may have uh, done uh, for their own farm. And sometimes we can find some, you know, pretty cool things, um, particularly like in weeding and uh, hoop house design and things of that nature. Um, so that, that one's been really useful too. Nice. Oh, I'm going to have to go there right away and I will put the link in the show notes. Okay. Do you guys have a favorite reading material, like a book or a magazine or even a different blog? 
Um, well, you know, in terms of books, and especially when you talk about new growers, you know, we were talking about soil. One of the ones that I'd recommend for people is called The Intelligent Gardener. And uh, it's written by Steve Solomon, who used to, well, he founded Territorial Seed Company here, but he, he later sold it and moved on to Tasmania. But it's really a great resource for um, understanding the nature of the minerals and, the, and other things in your soil. And it's not written like a biochemist. So you, um, it really helpful for the, um, you know, people to understand the nature of what's going on. And that will help, I think, anybody from a small vegetable grower, you know, to, for their own food to, you know, anybody. Um, the other um, book would be uh, The Lean Farm, which recently was released from uh, Ben Hartman, wrote that one. And it's about implementing uh, management practices that really focus on eliminating waste and what you do on your farm. Um, the one would be Jean-Martin uh, Fortier. He uh, wrote The Market Gardener. And he is a, um, a young guy who um, developed a really good system. He's in Quebec, and uh, he developed a really good system about how to grow, rotate crops, and things of that nature. I mean, it's kind of oriented to veggie, but it, it's um, there's a lot of things that are useful uh, in in that. So. You know, and aside from that, we follow a lot of blogs of different kinds um, from like the Purple Pitchfork. That's kind of a cool blog. Really? Um, I'm going to have that guy on. Stu, he's in my podcasting group. He just oh, great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. interview like two days ago. Cool. Oh, well, yeah, it's a community's getting pretty linked together here, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah. And the, uh, this lady, um, Joyce Pinson from Friends Drift In in Kentucky, in Appalachia, in Kentucky, she recommended that the Market Farmer one by Jean Martin Fortier. Uh, I yeah. got that for my husband, and it's really good. You're right. That's one of the best books that we've gotten. So, uh, And some of those others I'm excited to try. I think I did hear about that, Steve Solomon. But I might get that because that would help me as well as my husband he'll probably be like i told you i told you <laughs> <laughs> so, all right well uh are you ready for my final question okay kind of a doozy or did didn't did you have any books you want oh no um, we read both of the, all of those we read together so cool okay uh if there's one change you would like to see to create a greener world, what would it be? For example, is there a charity or organization you're passionate about or project you'd like to see put into action? Like, what do you feel is the most crucial issue facing our planet in regards to the environment, either locally, nationally, or on a global scale? Well, you know, from from my perspective, and, and I mean, we're flower-oriented, and one of the biggest things I think is, is just to continue to try to expand people's awareness about buying local. You know, food is, is really moved ahead on that. And people, because of all the problems that have gone on in the food sector, have kind of become more aware of that. And what we hope for is, is that we can start to develop the same um, kind of passion about, well, if you're putting flowers on your table, if you understood the amount of chemicals and 
you know, things that those flowers go through from South America to getting plopped on your table. Not to mention the footprint. And the foot, yeah, the carbon footprint. I mean, it's a huge, wasteful um, way. Uh, and and then the next thing would be for a greener world is, you know, the average farmer is um, like us. Aging. <laughs> Aging. And, well, I think what's exciting for us is to see that there are a lot of very um, young people, meaning in their 20s and 30s, that are moving into either food or flowers. Or both. Or, or both. Um, and animal raising and things of that nature. And what we would think would make a much better world from that standpoint is, is if local agriculture could get away from the model of, you know, you don't have to be big to, or, you know, to be successful. And that's one of the things that, you know, going back to Jean Martin's book is, is, you know what, if you do it right, um, it can be done. And if more of that message can get out, I think um, that will help tremendously. Did you want to add anything, Denise, or did you have a different, or you kind of worked on that? No, I'm, I'm in total agreement. I mean, uh, I, since I'm very poor, uh, flower oriented, it's all about buying local for me. Um, try and buy from, you know, local farmer, farmer, uh, farmer's market, or, you know, seek out the florists and designers who work with local flowers. At minimum, trying to support the local businesses in your area or the state at the state level. And finally, you know, buy American. <laughs> I mean, you know, please don't ship stuff in from overseas. Um, just well, I guess support the local people, the local farms, the local farmers and people who are growing your food, your flowers, your animals, your eggs, your whatever, support those local people in your own neighborhood. Absolutely. That's one of my husband's big pet peeves, or just like huge things. And that's kind of why he wants to grow as much of our food as we can. So to cut down on that transportation piece and just the whole local, trying to grow local. And I had this woman, um, from lavender and lilies, I think, who talked about all the chemical pesticides that are on uh, cut flowers, that even if they're grown organically, that to come into the United States, that there's huge pesticides that they have to um, put on them if they see even just like the tiniest little bug or something. And so, uh, right. yeah, I think people don't realize that. And then the other thing I just can't help, I got to quickly mention being, because I grew up in New York on Long Island. And when you go into New York City, you get used to like, you know, there's a little market on every corner and they have all those flowers there. And maybe things are changing, but I know the last time I went to visit New York, like two years ago, I was really looking because we were kind of thinking of relocating there to be close to my family for a while and looking at farming. And I thought that would be a huge market because there are tons of flowers on all those corners. You, you know, you don't walk very many blocks in New York City without seeing flowers on the corner of any grocery store. And I just think that that would be a huge place to sell organic flowers. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Just getting people the mindset that, you know, having flowers is not a luxury. It should be just part of your, you know, daily life. It pr provides beauty and, you know, just 
good for your soul. One of my big inspirations is Georgia O'Keeffe, and she she would splurge on bouquets and kind of like makes me sometimes when I think about her in the middle of winter when I'm like, oh, you know, should I be buying flowers? I kind of think about that too. But <laughs> yeah, more um, by in the spring. I was going to kind of ask you guys about that. Like when you were talking about the consistency and floors, like how do you deal with that piece between like, because your low, your season, like, you know, they, they need to import them certainly during the winter, I would think. So yeah. Is there like uh, anything you could say about that part? Well, that's part of the reason that we have um, invested time and energy in season extension. Actually, this last year, our downtime was what eight weeks At out the of the most. year. So um, yeah, it, it and we kind of think there are things that we can do that um, might even bridge that a little bit more. Um, in a perfect world, we'd love to sell 50 weeks of the year and then take two weeks off, but um, <laughs> that doesn't really happen. <laughs> not yet. This is even when we're not selling, we're working. So it's kind of, um, I mean, that's the nice, that's one aspect of having a passion is that you're excited about doing it <clears throat> because you better be. <laughs> <laughs> they say that about podcasting a lot too, like you better be podcasting about something that you would do for free. So, uh, yep. Good advice. Uh, okay. Do you have an inspirational tip or quote to help motivate listeners to reach into the dirt and start their own garden? Um, well, this is mine. It doesn't have anything to do necessarily with gardening, but mine is when the world says, give up hope whispers, try it one more time. I like that. Did you have one too, Tony? Or yeah, I, I do. It's it's a little bit different, but it kind of goes along the lines of what we were talking about. And this this comes from um, uh, Masanobu Fukuoka, and it's from in his book um, Natural Farming. And it says this: is if humanity can regain its original kinship with nature, we should be able to live in peace and abundance. And that's kind of what you know we were talking about and saying, well, a greener world. In a sense, if if micro farms and younger people can, you know, get that relationship back, um, I think you know we'll be will be a lot more resilient world instead of dependent on you know the lowest price, so to speak. <laughs> Absolutely, and I love those millennials. So I think we'll get there. Okay, do you want to tell listeners how to connect with you on your website? Um, yeah, we have a website. It's Bear Mountain Farm, B-A-R-E-M-T-N-F-A-R-M.com. Bear is in naked. Um, and, and, we, and we have links to um, Facebook and um, Instagram. Instagram on that. And we're also on Twitter, too. Is and we Bear have Mountain. a Pinterest page. And a Pinterest page. So, yeah, we're, we're everywhere. We're trying all the social media. Good for you guys. I, I keep trying to pick up my social media piece, but it's hard. It's, it's hard. hard <laughs> to keep up with it. And, um, yep. But I really want to encourage listeners to go to your website or any of those places because your pictures are gorgeous. You guys are growing some amazing flowers. 
and thank you check everything out you have been so inspirational and just full of great information today thank you so much have a wonderful holiday you too thank you you too Thank you for listening to the Organic Gardener podcast. I'd like to encourage you to check out our website, organicgardenerpodcast.com. That's just organicgardenerpodcast.com. And you'll see the links to everything that we've talked about today in the show notes page and all the other episodes there. Um, you can easily search for people by name. You can download our uh, ebook on organic gardening basics um, and subscribe to our newsletter for updates and um, just different things that are going on. Uh, thanks for listening and remember to grow.